Good morning, Governor College. It's good to see you. Welcome to another year of faculty chapel talks. Uh, the Covenant Faculty Chapel Series this year will again challenge our community by exploring a variety of dangerous ideas. We recognize that as a group, we, your faculty, are a relatively harmless bunch, not exactly bad dudes. But if there's anything about us that may be regarded as dangerous, it would likely be some of the ideas we encounter, entertain, engage, and sometimes attempt to refute. As I argued in a talk last winter, I believe that there are at least three varieties of dangerous ideas that we might consider. There are ideas that are dangerous because they're false, ideas we consider dangerous because they are subversive, and ideas that are dangerous because they are seductive. One of our aims at Covenant is not to shield you from false, challenging, or incendiary ideas, but to walk alongside you as you develop greater skill and nuance in working through such ideas, integrating them into an ever more mature vision of Christian faithfulness. I pray that our faculty series this year will accomplish this at least to some degree for each of you. To deliver the first installment of this year's series is Dr. Alyssa Whitebrook. <laughs> Dr. Whitebrook is assistant professor of art. She was born and raised in Hawaii. And truth be told, I think her heart remains in that beautiful but distant place. As an 18-year-old, she traveled to Lookout Mountain, Georgia where she went on to earn her BA at Covenant in 2004. She also holds the PhD in art history from Washington University in St. Louis. She is beginning her fourth year on faculty. And what can I say about Dr. Whitebrook? Uh, when I've had the rare privilege of walking through an art museum with her, and she invites me to see the collection through her eyes, not only am I persuaded of her genuine brilliance, she also has a way of making me feel smarter. She's a careful thinker, a provocative analyst, and an endlessly curious student of the world. She's already developed a reputation as a first-rate teacher and a beloved mentor. In addition to this, she is the wife of Noel, mother to Miles and Zeke, and friend to many. Simply put, She's the kind of person that makes you feel happy and proud to say that you are connected to Covenant College. We are thrilled to have her kick off our new series this morning. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Alyssa Whitebrook. Covenant College body since I was an undergrad. Are you ready? Aloha, Covenant College. <laughs> Especially as an alumna of this school, it is a real honor to get to speak to you all today. So I want to thank Jay Green and Kelly Caffick for inviting me to participate in this series. 
And I also want to thank a recent graduate, Johnny Coddington, for essentially volunteering me to them last year. And thanks to Sammy and Nabil for starting us off. You'll understand why I asked them for that song in just a little bit. Let's open in prayer. My prayer this morning comes from Psalm 90. Our great God, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Forward one for me. Rather than a dangerous idea, I want to begin by reliving a dangerous encounter, and we'll call it dangerous encounter number one. I'm a student at Covenant, a senior, I think, and my art criticism class is on a field trip to Atlanta. We are visiting a contemporary art gallery and I'm drawn to two large black and white photographs hanging right next to each other on the wall. They are tonally rich with simple forms emerging out of inky black backgrounds, kind of like a Caravaggio painting. I'm not really sure why the artist, Lorna Simpson, has taken photographs of these things, though. On the right is a photograph of the back of a black woman's head, and on the left is an image of a piece of braided hair arranged as if in a box. But it's the text, these plastic plaques with white letters on a black background that unsettle me. Back, reads the one on the left. A row of five other words are stacked on the right and affixed to the photograph. And I am confused. Words are supposed to explain pictures, right? That's why we have captions and titles for our photographs. But Simpson's words are both getting in the way of the images and making things more complicated, not less so. Intuitively, I start making compound words out of the text, almost like a spelling worksheet game. Backlash, backbone, background, backache, backpay. Now it feels like the image is buzzing with some kind of violent energy simmering below the surface. Has this woman suffered backlash for something she did? Does her back ache? Is she owed back pay? What will her payback be? My mind floods with half-formed thoughts and elusive memories of reading about the backbreaking labor endured by black slaves in the United States, about lashes received on black backs, about black women being repeatedly relegated to the background of society, and about contemporary arguments for black reparations. And then, as I stand there puzzling over the text, I shift and I catch a glimpse of my face reflected in the glass that encases the images. I am left staring back at myself while this other woman refuses to turn around to look at me. I leave. I'm upset, and I feel like I've been bruised. I'm a little angry, too. I'm a half-Japanese girl who grew up in Hawaii, 
a literal product of American colonialism. And I have been taught that the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement eradicated racism on the US mainland. So how dare this artist suggest that I have some sort of culpability? How dare she trap me like that inside the glass and glossy black of her images, making me uneasy and uncertain about the state of race relations in America? I had come to learn about art, not to be lectured by it. It was only years later that I realized I had never once wondered what the woman's face looked like or if she had a name. The texture of her hair and the darkness of her skin seemed like sufficient information at the time. Why do we look at images? I used to look at images primarily to be odd. I loved the photographs in National Geographic because they seemed so otherworldly, even though they claimed to be real. I loved looking at paintings by Caravaggio and Rossetti and Dutch still life painters because of how they transformed paint into flesh and fur and flowers and fruit. I loved looking at Baroque and neoclassical sculptures where stone became pliable and defied gravity. I still do a lot of odd looking. If you take intro to art history with me, you know that I can rave about a sculpture like this one for an entire class period, no problem. When you look to be odd, the connection to God seems fairly straightforward. Artworks like these mirror, though still dimly, the creative power of our God, whose image we all bear. But I learned that this approach also has some significant limitations. First, thanks in no small part to my Bible and doctrine classes at Covenant, I began to recognize the diversity of responses to God that are included in the Bible, particularly in the Psalms and Prophets. There are Psalms of praise, to be sure, and Psalms of thanksgiving, but there are also Psalms of lament. These Psalms of lament are divinely inspired, but they are not really awe-inspiring. Instead, they orient us to a brokenness that cries for redemption. Christian scholars like William Durness, Jeremy Begbie, and later Dan Seidel helped me begin to imagine what a corollary in the visual arts might be to this kind of reading. Perhaps I could, even should, look for the purpose of lament, not just for aesthetic awe. The second problem was that once I decided to enter the field of art history, I realized I couldn't do art history well and just ignore all of the things I didn't like. Being an art historian meant looking closely, thoughtfully, and humbly, digging into the context and social role of an artwork, not merely declaring its aesthetic merit. The discipline required investigation, not just connoisseurship. This meant that looking, really seeing an artwork like Lorna Simpson's might demand something of me. And this is what felt dangerous. It might actually change me. I am certainly aware of my responsibility to bring my faith to bear on my work, but I am also in agreement with my colleague, Jay Green, <laughs> that faithfulness means allowing my discipline, art history, to speak to my life of faith, to cultivate, as he says, a deeper love for God and for my neighbor. And today, I want to share with you just one very particular way that a few works by contemporary American artists served as catalysts for my own confession, lament, and eventual empathy. Dangerous encounter number two. 
It's a few years after I saw the Lorna Simpson photographs, and I am in the early stages of graduate school. I need a seminar paper topic, so I flip through a book in the library until a single image arrests me. It is an artwork I have never seen before, and yet it seems oddly familiar. The sculpture itself is fairly simple. An old-fashioned laundry crank hangs on the wall, but instead of wet cotton pressed between the rollers, there's a long skein of black hair. Black, smooth hair. It's my hair, my mother's hair, my friend's hair that I would braid at childhood sleepovers, and it is pressed between a contraption that looks very much like something tucked away in my grandfather's crawl space next to where he does his laundry back home in Honolulu. That crank belongs to my Japanese great-grandmother, an artifact from her days as a laundress in plantation-era Hawaii. And I am so startled to see a reference to my body and my history in the pages of a book on art. And that, in turn, surprises me. I realize somewhat awkwardly that I never really believed that my history, shared by many other families of Japanese immigrants in Hawaii, was significant enough to make art about. Art, I had assumed, is about big, noble themes and heroic histories. It's not supposed to be about poor immigrant laborers. And this also isn't a positive image, celebrating Japanese heritage and success in Hawaii. If anything, it's painful to look at, actually physically painful. It's a twist in the gut that recalls the difficult, the tragic, and the despairing parts of my and my maternal family's history and identity. I need to know more. I learned that the sculpture, Rung, was created by the Japanese-American artist Lin Yamamoto in 1992. Yamamoto, like me, was born and raised in Hawaii, and this work is part of a loose series in which she struggles to make sense of her immigrant grandmother's suicide, which followed Imperial Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. By putting materials like hair, photographs, soap, and laundry implements in compelling juxtaposition, she tries to reimagine, maybe even recreate, the dark psychic space that led her laundress grandmother to such a desperate act. And I'm aching, but I also feel this strange, life-giving delight. I am so grateful for this artist, then still a stranger, for expressing in poignant visual terms a story achingly but quietly familiar to many in my home community. It means that others could look at it, even those who don't share my history. And perhaps those viewers could be curious about and ache a little for a woman they don't know, but whose story still matters. And then I realized, if I wanted others to look at Yamamoto's work and see that my story was worthy of being told and being heard, then I also needed to be willing to do that with other stories. And so, slowly, and uncomfortably, I began to actually seek out artworks that told unfamiliar stories. It was painful, like someone sticking a finger in those tender spots around your joints. They showed me stories I didn't know, that I had ignored, that I had dismissed as untrue or unimportant. They showed me ways that their bodies had been disrespected or destroyed by others. They showed me the names they had been called and the fears that still lived inside. Before, I might have argued that these so-called artworks were on a pernicious mission to dismantle 500 years of aesthetic theory. Or I might have accused these artists of simply whining about the past or purposely being divisive. 
But as I started to realize how little I cared for the histories of my neighbors, I began to see these artists as being profoundly generous. They did not have to give those stories to others, knowing that they might be ridiculed or ignored, but they chose to share them anyway, to give me, an outsider to their community, an entry point for empathy. But why look at art rather than simply reading more? Now, obviously, I am a little biased here. Still, I would argue that there is a particular power to engaging with these kinds of artworks. One reason for that is because artworks as things can engage us through our bodies. When I see Rung in person, I feel this pressure in my chest and a tingling in my scalp. I know what it would feel like to run my fingers through that tangle of hair. The hair becomes a stand-in for the body, and I imagine and absorb the excruciating pain of being pressed through a ringer. This kind of knowledge in and through the body speaks to our reality as image bearers, whose bodies and stories have been dignified by the incarnation of our Savior. We are creatures who receive particular knowledge of God's promise and sacrifice through the physical acts of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Art, while certainly not a sacrament, does invite us to embody knowledge. And this is perhaps especially powerful now, at a time when many of us might feel caught between the seeming ephemerality of the digital and the church's frequent discomfort with our physicality. Second, contemporary artworks can become part of how we order and understand our visible world. In her recent book, Loving to Know, A Covenant Epistemology, philosopher Esther Meeks describes the process of knowing as akin to looking at one of these magic 3D eye patterns, magic eye 3D patterns. She's not the first to do so, but it's a helpful analogy. Right, so you begin by looking at apparently random particulars, and you have to decide if you believe that there's something more there there's a deeper pattern. Most of us struggle to see something here, and unless you are like directly lined up with this, you're not going to be able to see anything. And then maybe something clicks, and you realize there's a bunch of penguins on the screen. In an act of coming to know, the particulars that once seemed random are endowed with meaning, and we incorporate them into ourselves. Meek has a philosophical term for it, it's kind of fancy, but it's really just a kind of knowing under the surface, the way that you know how to read so you can focus on what you're reading. The knowing becomes part of you. It lives in your body. Meek's account of epistemology reminded me of how images work. We have all seen thousands, perhaps even millions of images. We certainly don't remember every image we've ever seen, but they form a kind of web in our memories. And what we know or have been told about some of these images becomes a way that we categorize new things that we see. So this is what a hero looks like. This is what love looks like. This is what a desirable body looks like. Some art historians call this our archive, the mental shelving system that tells us how to understand what we see around us based on what we've seen before. And so looking at these artworks can be a deeply intimate experience as the things we see actually then become part of us. Dangerous encounter number three. I'm standing in a small gallery with dark walls. 33 framed photographs hang on the wall in a syncopated pattern of two in a row and four in a grid. 
All of the figures in the photographs are black. These are images that float like ghosts in the recesses of my memory, something I saw once in a history textbook, a newspaper, a museum, or an antique store. But despite this familiarity, there is nothing quaint or nostalgic about this display because the artist also makes them strange. The photographs, originally all black and white, are now tinted. Most of them are a deep, saturated red, as if I am peering at them through a pool of blood. There's text, too, but it refuses to stay confined below as a traditional caption would. Instead, the words hover over the photographs, and I have to slow down almost painfully to disentangle text and image. The first photograph in the series, Tinted Blue, is a 20th century anthropological image of a Mangbetu woman in profile, her chin jutting out, elongating her neck, and balancing this elaborate crown of braids on her head. Floating near the bottom of the image, actually cut into the protective glass, are the words, from here I saw what happened. I follow the woman's gaze to the right to see what she is seeing. The next 31 blood-red photographs and their ghostly text weave a slow, poetic history of black bodies in America. You became a scientific profile, one reads, a Negroid type in anthropological debate. You became mammy, mama, mother, and then yes, confidant, ha. Descending the throne, you became foot soldier and cook. Through the repetition of words like became and ha, the text creates a rolling cadence, moving between longer phrases and single words, all punctuated by the black frames. The text is like a poem, but not one that I really want to keep reading, because the words cut into me, like the letters themselves are etched into the glass. You became Uncle Tom, John, and Clemens Jim, drivers, riders, and men of letters. You became a whisper, a symbol of a mighty voyage, and by the sweat of your brow, you labored for self, family, and others. For your names, you took hope and humble. Black and tanned, your whipped wind of change howled low, blowing itself, ha, smacked into the middle of Ellington's orchestra. Billy heard it too and cried strange fruit tears. These images aren't easy to look at. The scarred back of Gordon, a slave who escaped from a Louisiana plantation, and the stripped bodies of black women offer heavy reminders of how the exploitation of black bodies has been darkly woven into our nation's history. Another photograph depicts a heavily made-up woman sitting with her eyes downcast beneath the text, you became an accomplice. I can't even summon up a modicum of self-righteousness. There's no clear story of victims and villains. Instead, I get a pulsing, ragged history of loose ends that leaves me bruised and aching and I very much want it to stop. The final image is a mirror of the first. The Mangbetsu woman now faces to the left, gazing back over the red-tinted images in between. Over the darkness of her shadowed shoulder, I read, and I cried. And I do. I cry again years later in 2014, after I hear that Michael Brown, an unarmed teenager from St. Louis, has been shot and killed by then-police officer Darren Wilson. 
I had only recently moved to Chattanooga from St. Louis, and Brown lived not terribly far from my former home in a primarily black neighborhood. As I watch the protests and confrontations that unfold from a distance, I cannot shake Carrie Mae Weems' work from my mind. Early into my time in St. Louis, where I lived for seven years for graduate school, I learned that systemic racial injustice had not, in fact, been eradicated by either the Civil War or the Civil Rights Movement. I saw injustice in how municipal lines had been drawn and how the sidewalks crumbled when she got a block or two north of Delmar. I saw it in rows of empty, beautiful brick houses deserted years earlier by white owners who had fled to be somewhere safer. I heard it in county's adamant refusal to extend the metro line into the suburb for fear of thugs bringing crime. I heard it in the stories of black students at my elite graduate school who were so very weary of being followed around by suspicious campus security guards. And yes, I studied it as part of my art historical scholarship. As these stories began to sink into me, I started to wonder if I actually had not been weeping with my neighbors who are weeping, if I had not opened my mouth and spoken for justice on behalf of the oppressed. I realized that I had been guilty of offering superficial treatment for a mortal wound, that I, like the enemies of Israel, cursed by the prophet Jeremiah, had cried, peace, peace, where there was no peace. I repented, and God, the God who promises to work righteousness and justice for all the oppressed forgave me. Carrie Meem's work, among others, prepared me to listen to these stories with a breaking heart. The stories of my neighbors, whom Jesus tells me to love as much as I love myself. She gave me a context that my own experience did not provide, access to an archive that was not my own. Restless after the longest winter, we marched and marched and marched. And so in 2014, as protests swelled over Michael Brown's death and systematic racial bias in local policing and the court system, I could understand those daily marches through Ferguson to downtown St. Louis in Cleveland as inheritors of earlier marches. I thought about the march of the 54th Massachusetts Infantry Regiment one of the first African-American units in the United States during the Civil War, who were paid half the amount of their white counterparts. I thought about the march of the segregated 333rd Field Artillery Battalion, who sustained more severe casualties than any other artillery unit while fighting in the Battle of the Bulge in the Second World War. These were men who gave their lives on behalf of a country who did not deem them quite human enough to serve alongside white soldiers. And I think about the first attempt by civil rights organizers on March 7, 1965, to march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, only to be brutally attacked by state troopers on the other side. Weems asked me to recognize the historical trauma endured and inherited by many black Americans, a tacit knowledge through which they interpret contemporary events. And so again in Ferguson, they marched and marched and marched. I cry again on June 17, 2015, after learning that Dylan Roof had been welcomed into a Wednesday prayer meeting at Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and then stood up and shot and killed nine of those people who had just shown him the love of Christ. I returned to Weems' installation and to a photograph 
of a crowd of African-American men, women, and children sitting on the ground, waiting beneath the text. In your sing-song prayer, you asked, didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? The words loop in my mind like the gospel song they reference. This prayer has been sung time and time again, propelled by a persevering belief that deliverance will someday come. I imagine Emmanuel's congregation in 1818 singing this song when members were jailed and ministers were whipped on account of their race, and again in 1822 when the church was burned by white supremacists, and again in 1834 when black churches were forbidden by the state, and again in 1886 when an earthquake destroyed the building, and again in 1962 when they rallied for voting rights. I hear an echo of Psalm 13. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? And yes, I cry again this summer when Alton Sterling and Philando Castile are killed within a day each other by police in St. Paul and Baton Rouge. And I weep when officers are killed in Dallas and in Baton Rouge. And I cry when public figures use those unspeakable tragedies to deny the validity of the anger sorrow and fears harbored by the families and communities of Tamir Rice, Eric Garner, Sandra Bland, Walter Scott, and Freddie Gray, among others. Philosopher Esther Meek, whom I mentioned earlier, argues for what she calls a covenant epistemology. Knowing, she says, is not information so much as it is transformation. This makes sense, she continues, if knowing the truth having been known by Christ the truth, is central epistemically. It isn't, about being, it isn't about mere information, but about being transformatively known. Rather than knowledge being linear and deductive, Meek, and she is part of a clear philosophical tradition in this, claims that all acts of coming to know are integrative, meaning they become part of us. All knowing, she says, is akin to knowing God. It is transformative and relational. And so, she ultimately argues, we don't know in order to love, we love in order to know. A covenant epistemology demands that we look upon others with love, giving ourselves for the sake of others. This is knowledge as an act of covenantal care. For me, contemporary art, particularly work made by artists grappling with histories and experiences that have seen, remained largely unseen, unknown, and unloved by dominant culture, has served as a catalyst for faithful knowing. Looking with love meant returning to that Lorna Simpson photograph and her very purposeful choice to show it behind reflective glass. So I looked. I did not imagine that I could fully understand the hurt and the horror and the anxiety that she and many other women of color carry every day in America. But I looked and allowed the reality of her story to take up residence in me to become part of how I order and understand my world. And because this loving knowledge has become part of me, I have changed how I respond when the violent erasure of black bodies and histories is downplayed, disregarded, or denigrated. It has meant asking questions when it would be a lot easier to be silent, speaking up in communities where, it would, where I am unsure of my reception. It has meant changing some patterns of what essays, Twitter feeds, books, and music fill my time. It shapes how I talk to my children about their world. 
These changes aren't noble sacrifices or means of assuaging a guilty conscience. They simply allow me to love my neighbors and my God more faithfully. Now, I chose this particular narrative of how my discipline has shaped my spiritual life very purposefully. This summer, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America, shout out, the, the denomination to which this college belongs, in case you didn't know, passed an overture that recognized, confessed, condemned, and repented of corporate and historical sins of racial injustice. As part of this overture, the denom denomination urged congregations to consider what particular actions of repentance and reconciliation might be in order. So this kind of penitent self-reflection is something, something happening throughout our denomination right now, and I'm thankful for that. There's a whole book of such reflections, and I'm adding my voice to those of church leaders. But ultimately, this is also an invitation. I want to invite you to do your work dangerously this academic year. Do not think that your theology will unilaterally shape what you do as a student. Allow your academic work to shape your mind and to break your heart, to kindle a love for God and your neighbor that you did not have previously. Take an art history class and learn to look at the work of Doris Salcedo or Alfredo Yar or David Hammonds or Sonia Boyce or find out how God might want to change you in your history or biology or economics or music or writing or linguistics class. Rather than treating the uncomfortable, the unsettling, or even the upending as a threat, might you instead see it as an opportunity? And you know what? In the end, what I thought of as dangerous encounters weren't so dangerous at all. Because if we are indeed rooted and grounded in love, then God will surely give us the strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. And we will know that this love surpasses understanding as we are filled with all the fullness of God. Will you join me in pursuing knowledge from a place of love and being willing to be changed along the way? I do hope so. Thank you.